I have been thinking this week about repetition. Do you remember back when you were a child, the times your parents would have to repeat things to you? I mean, there were those crisis moments where if they didn't say something, we were all going to die. And so it was, stop, stop, stop! <laughs> you know, why they had to repeat stop three times in all capitals, I don't know. But anyway, but then there were the other run-of-the-mill times where they repeated themselves. I remember as a child, I must have been very loud, very noisy. And over and over and over again, my parents had to tell me to stop running up and down the stairs and to stop slamming the door. Apparently, those two notorious uh, loud things that I did that they just had to repeat over and over again. So I'm wondering, what was it that your parent had to repeat to you? What was the command, the instruction, the rebuke? the encouragement that your parents just had to repeat over and over again to you. Just call them out in a couple words. Please be quiet. Speak more slowly. What was the other one? Leave him alone. Your brother, you had a brother, I'm two brothers. Yeah, leave them both alone. What else? Shut the door. You're letting the flies in. Eat your vegetables. Parents have to so often repeat themselves. And Jesus, while he was not a parent, also repeated himself. So join me this morning in um, Luke. We're going to be all over the place. But Luke 9, Luke 18, Luke 22, just kind of find those places. We're going to be hopping back and forth. But Perhaps the most oft-repeated thing that Jesus said had to do with the prophecy, the prediction that he was going to die. We touched on this in last week's sermon, but in Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Right after Peter had said, You are the Messiah, Jesus lays this first prediction of his death on them. Then he repeats it a little, a few days later, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 44. He says, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And then a while later in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Three times, Jesus spells out in no uncertain terms the fact that he is facing an impending death. And he gives them details about what that is. And so I, I began wondering this week, what was it about his death that got Jesus thinking in terms of having to say this, not once, not twice, but three different times? 
I, I wonder if perhaps he needed to do this to gradually bring things into sharper focus for himself and for the disciples. In these three predictions, Jesus mentions three different groups of people who are going to persecute him, who are going to be responsible for his death. The first time he says it, he says the Jewish people, you know, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, these are the people who are going to be responsible for his death. Wonder if he's not thinking to himself, and these are the very people who should have known better. These are the people who spent so much time studying the scriptures. They should have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, but instead they're going to be the ones who are responsible for his death. The second time he says that he will be given into the hands of men, perhaps a reference to the entire human race. We are all responsible for his death, aren't we? It's our sin for which he died. The very ones who stand to benefit the most from Jesus coming into our world and we are responsible for his death. The third time he predicts his death, he says he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. The irony of the fact that Jesus came to remind the Jews and everyone that God was not only interested in one ethnic group. God was not interested in just the Jewish people. God was interested in the entire human race. He had sent his son to save the entire race. But here, you know, perhaps understandably, the Gentiles were blind to that and they would be responsible. So perhaps he's drawing a more complete picture with these three references, predictions to his death, sketching out the details in ever more detail. Up to the point that Jesus began making these predictions of his death, it's, it's said in the Gospels that the people that heard his teaching, the people that witnessed his miracles, were amazed. That's one of the, the, those words. They're amazed and astonished. So up until this point, when Jesus does something, the people say, wow, that's incredible. I've never seen anything like that before. That's amazing. That's astonishing. Who is this person? So it's a, against that backdrop of amazement and astonishment and miracle-working power, it's against that backdrop that Jesus starts to come to terms with his impending death. When everybody is singing your praises, you don't think that they're going to turn on you, right? <laughs> when everybody is telling you how great you are and how much they respect you and how much they love you and how much they like you, you're not automatically going to start to think, I bet they're going to kill me, right? That's the last thought that comes to our mind. So perhaps as Jesus begins to share these predictions of his death, he's coming to terms with the fact that people can turn on you in the flash, a blink of an eye. Everything could change. How could he be rejected so completely by people who were singing his praises one day? Now, if we believe that Jesus was fully human, fully God, but fully human, if we read in Scripture what's true, that Jesus was 
growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. If, if Jesus as a human being had to develop, not only physically, but apparently also in, in wisdom, then we must entertain the possibility that part of what Jesus is doing with these rep repeated announcements was working through his own feelings and his own apprehension about the death that was awaiting him. If Jesus is human, if Jesus grew up in a number of different ways, if Jesus learned the things about life that we have to learn over the course of our life, then it's possible that Jesus, like us, was challenged to come to terms with the fact that he would be dying prematurely. Uh, we know what this is like, right? You get a cancer diagnosis. You, you can no longer work as long and as hard as you used to, to do. You know, something changes in your life and all of a sudden there are more aches and pains and you have to come to grips with that, don't you? We're coming to grips with the fact that we won't live forever. That things that didn't used to phase us are now a little bit more challenging for us to, to deal with. Well, Jesus apparently, probably, had those same kind of feelings. So while Jesus may have been coming to, the, coming to grips with his death, the disciples were having an even greater difficulty with these announcements. Let's look back at chapter 9, verse 45. After Jesus, for the second time, says that he's going to die, verse 45, but the disciples did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they could not, or they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. And then in verse 18, verse, or chapter 18, verse 34, the disciples, after the third prediction of his death, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. So Jesus is coming to grips with the changes that are about to take place in his life. The disciples are struggling even more. And there are three words that are used here in Luke's gospel to describe the challenge, the struggle that these disciples were having. The first word is that they didn't understand. Don't you find it that that which runs counter to our expectations, our hopes, our dreams is often incomprehensible to us? Jesus had worked these extraordinary displays of power, miracle working, healing, uh, power over nature, miracles. Jesus had, had been demonstrating his power to his disciples. And so you can imagine that they were absolutely convinced that Jesus would use that same kind of power to proclaim himself the Messiah. That Jesus would use that same kind of power to accomplish what they were all, all the Jewish people were hoping for. And that was that the Romans would be run out of their country and the glory of King David would be restored and they would once again become this mighty nation 
with other nations around them sending gold and tribute to them. That was their expectation. And Jesus was demonstrating the kind of power that would help him to be able to accomplish that, right? Right? <laughs> and so it's difficult for these disciples who have been seeing that kind of power to hear and understand when Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. I thought of ways of illustrating this, and the one that came to me, it may not be good, but the one that came to me is that uh, there's a literary device in novels, maybe whodunit novels, mystery kind of things, where as you're reading the book, you begin to develop this idea of who done it, who's responsible for this, who's the one that made this thing happen, who's the guilty one, you know. And then at the end of the book, the author puts in this twist, and somebody that you just didn't see becomes the one responsible for whatever the crime was or what. That twist in the plot. And, and, and it takes us all by surprise, doesn't it? And then we have to go back and rethink about this whole story. Okay, now, where was this person when such and such a thing happened? And, and why didn't I see oh, oh, I see it now. Well, the disciples didn't see it now. They had been watching this miracle-working Jesus who they thought would become the new King David and drive the Romans out. And when he started talking about death on a cross, they just couldn't comprehend that. The second word that's used is fear. They were afraid to ask Jesus about what he was talking about. Maybe this is that dumbstruck awe. We're in the presence of God. I'm surprised I'm not dead yet. But I suspect perhaps it has more to do with this, uh, you know how it is where where the teacher says something and you haven't been paying full attention. And all of a sudden the teacher calls on you and you realize that the answer, the only answer you're probably gonna give to this question is gonna be wrong because you weren't paying attention. And so you don't say anything because you know that saying something is probably going to make a fool out of you, but maybe saying nothing is not quite as bad. I'm wondering if the fear of these disciples, they didn't know what to say to Jesus, might have been part of that, the fear of humiliation. I don't know what's going on here. I, I, I can't make sense of this, so I'm not going to ask any questions because that'll just make me look like a fool in front of everybody else. Perhaps it's that kind of fear. The third word is the word hidden, a word that's translated in other places concealed or covered up or veiled. And the context here would tend to indicate to us that perhaps they didn't understand, they couldn't ask any questions, they just didn't understand this because Jesus hadn't made them able to comprehend it yet. We need to have God open our minds. This is explained in, in Luke chapter 24, verse 45. 
Then, after the resurrection, then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Sometimes the reason we don't understand what's going on is because God hasn't opened our minds. Here I was, a 17-year-old, I thought I knew everything about life. <laughs> Laugh at me with me, okay? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I, I thought I knew who God was, too. God was a rule maker. God was the cosmic killjoy. God was the one that didn't want me to have any fun. It was all rules and regulations. And then, in the blink of an eye, God said, David, I love you. He opened my mind to the love of God, which I had never considered up until that point. Perhaps these disciples didn't know what Jesus was talking about, couldn't understand what he was talking about fully because it's going to take Jesus opening their minds before they can really get their brains around this. So Jesus is struggling to come to grips with his impending death. And the disciples are in even a more rough place. They're struggling to figure out what Jesus is talking about and how to make sense out of all of this. But eventually the time came for Jesus to be arrested. And before that happened, there was one last opportunity for both Jesus and his disciples to struggle with this impending death one more time. Join me in Luke chapter 22. Verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, they, he, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. This is what he said, Father, if you are willing, Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Little repetition here. Jesus prays for himself twice. In Matthew's version of this time of prayer, he prays the same thing twice. This is such an agonizing decision for Jesus, such an agonizing decision, coming to grips with his, the need for him to die, such a, a, a difficult thing for him to get his mind, his feelings around, that he's sweating drops of blood. Medical doctors tell us that this is possible. This is an apt description of what was going on. And the circumstances under which this happens usually is such uh, an excruciating, stressful situation in one's life that the, the capillaries near the surface of, of our, our skin just begin to burst with high blood pressure, perhaps. Does that help you to understand the stress that Jesus was under? He's about to be arrested. And he knows it's going to go downhill fast from that moment. 
And he spent all of his life coming to terms with the fact that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Paschal Lamb who is going to be slain for the sins of the world. He has spent all of his life knowing that he's one of the chosen people, the Jewish people. And yet his life is going to make a difference for everyone in the world, but it's going to mean that he is going to have to lay down his life. Such an excruciating, agonizing decision that he's sweating drops of blood. The question is whether he's going to go through with this or not. And if we believe that Jesus is fully human, then we can begin perhaps just in a very small way to feel what he was feeling. He is going to have to make the decision. Is he going to follow through with this? Will he submit and die? Or will he turn and run away? Of course, we know the end of the story, don't we? Thank God. But it wasn't just Jesus in the garden who's struggling with this. It hasn't ever been just about him. What Jesus is about to experience is what all of his disciples, including us, will also have to experience. We are faced with the same question Jesus was struggling with in the garden. Do I submit and die? Or do I run away and avoid the pain? I know this to be the case. I know that Jesus was saying this to his disciples because in the, the first two predictions of his death, that prediction is followed by some teaching. If you look back in chapter 9, verse 23 to 25, then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. You hear that? Jesus says, I'm going to die. And then he immediately says, and so do you. <laughs> the, the second time he makes the prediction, in Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 46, an argument started among the disciples after Jesus had said this as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. I'm going to die. Are you willing to become a little child? A powerless little child? 
Are you willing to become the least in the kingdom in order that you might have eternal life? So Jesus is inviting them and Jesus is inviting us to walk the same walk that he was embarking on that night. And the disciples were so distraught that they were asleep because of their sorrow. You know what I hear in that passage? I hear depression. I don't know about you, but the times that I have lived through depression, there is nothing I wanted to do more than just to go crawl into bed. Those disciples were beginning to understand what lay before Jesus and perhaps what lay before them. And they were so upset and discouraged and despondent about this that all they could do was fall asleep. Jesus has come to the place where he can say, not my will, but your will be done. Will the disciples be able to say that as well? So, twice Jesus prays, and then twice Jesus gives his disciples the same instruction, the same advice, the same command. He says, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What was the temptation they were at risk of falling into? I would suggest that the temptation was the temptation to put my will over God's will. The temptations associated with Christ-like sacrificial servanthood and how hard that would be, how difficult it would be to say yes to that. It's the temptation of always preferring and satisfying one's own will before God's will. That's the temptation that they were, they were facing. And so Jesus says, Get up and pray so that you will not fall into that temptation. You will not give in to that my will over God's will temptation. Get up and pray. And I would suggest to you that the prayer that Jesus had been praying was the prayer that he was asking them to pray. Let's call it a prayer of release. A prayer of release. Not my will, Lord. If there's another way, fine. <laughs> if, if you can take this cup away from me, fine. But not what I want, but what you want. That's Jesus' prayer of release, and I would suggest that's what Jesus is asking his disciples to pray in order to avoid this temptation of giving in to that my will over God's will. Yet thinking about examples of this prayer of release, the first one that comes to mind is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples recorded in Matthew in the Sermon of the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. The second phrase of that is, Your kingdom come. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. paraphrasing that, your will comes first, God. Your kingdom is most important in my life. 
I want it to happen in my life just as perfectly as it is done in your kingdom. I want your will to become my will. That's what Jesus teaches us to pray, right? Do you, do you pray that prayer every day? I think it's intended as a daily prayer. Every day do we get down on our knees and say, knees and say Lord, if you can take all of the temptations of this day ahead of me, if you can take all of the hardship away from me, great. But if not, your will be done, not my will. Make my life, my attitudes, my words, my interactions today be just as righteous and pure and loving and kind as yours have always been. Do you, do you pray that prayer every day? If not, let's start doing that. Another example of this prayer of release, I began this past week rereading re one of the seminal books in my life, my spiritual formation, my preparation to be a pastor. It's a book by a Christian psychologist named Scott Peck, written back in the early 80s. It's called The Different Drum. In that book, he describes the process that people go through trying to become a community. Example, trying to become the body of Christ. And he identifies four steps. We start off with what he calls pseudo-community. That's the kind of relationships where we talk about easy, non-offensive stuff. We just look at the stuff that's on the surface of each other's lives. Maybe there's a lot of things in common that brought us together as a group. And so it's news, sports, and weather conversations. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion. We talk about the easy stuff. The second phase is chaos, because sooner or later, if you stick around each other long enough, you start to discover the things about one another that you don't like. The differences of opinions, the annoying idiosyncrasies, the habits. And it devolves into chaos where we start attacking each other. The third step is emptying. Letting go, releasing. And you have to go through that before you get to real community. And so as Peck is describing these four stages, these four steps, when he gets to the emptying stages, he's, he's talking about releasing things like expectations. What do you expect of other people? And can you let go of them? Letting go of preconceptions and prejudices and ideology that's not like yours. Letting go of solutions. Letting go of the need to heal and convert and fix and solve other people's problems. This is something that we've been talking a lot about in Stephen ministry training. The role of a Stephen minister is not to fix somebody's problems. But guys, can I get a testimony? What do we like to do best when somebody comes to us with a problem? Fix it, yeah. But if we're going to get to real community, we have to give up the need to heal and convert and fix and solve the need to control all of these things get in the way of embracing true community, but they also get in the way of us embracing God. Because we've got expectations about God. We have preconceptions about God. <laughs> they get in the way with 
community with others and with unity with God. Another example of this prayer of release is something that Elizabeth Elliot said. Many of you know Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of martyred missionary Jim Elliot. She said, to pray thy will be done, I must be willing, if the answer requires it, that my will be undone. To pray thy will be done, I must be willing, if the answer requires it, that my will be undone. So the things that we parents often repeated to our children, <laughs> be quiet, leave them alone, <laughs> were probably the same things that our parents told us, right? So when Jesus repeated things to his disciples, he was probably also hearing the voice of his heavenly father. Have you ever thought about the conversations Jesus had with his father? I suspect that part of those conversations were his heavenly father talking to Jesus about the need to submit, the need to empty himself and his will, the need to be obedient to God's call in his life, the need to release the expectations and the preconceptions that Jesus might have had as a human being. The temptation Jesus overcame was the temptation to choose his will over his Father's will. Our temptation is exactly the same. The way of Jesus is the downward way. It's the way of emptying our own will. It is the only way to community with others, and it's the only way to unity with God. It's why the rich boy, the rich boy became poor. So how do we pray when we don't understand the ways of God? How do we pray when God's ways are hidden because he hasn't yet opened our mind to those ways? How do we pray when we're afraid to ask what God means? I would suggest that these words of Jesus are the ones that we need to listen to. He said, get up and pray. And specifically, he said, get up and pray, not my will, but your will be done. One final example of this prayer of release is called the Methodist Covenant Prayer. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It's up here on the overhead. Evelyn, is that full size for the people at home? Is the prince a little small? Let's read this together. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for, and by the way, employed doesn't mean gainfully employed in a job. It means let me be busy for God. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full 
let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. I know we don't usually pray with our eyes open, but I need us to do that because I'd like you to look at that, read it over silently a time or two. Pay attention to the word, the phrase that seems to be standing out to you that God might be drawing to your attention. And use this as a template, a, a way of praying in which we release ourselves to do God's will and God's will only. Go ahead, read and ponder and pray. Lord, if you want to make us happy and rich, that's okay, please do it. But if you need us to be sober, serious, and poor, embrace that as well. Lord, if, if you can use us in some spectacular way that will get uh, all kinds of people into your kingdom and bring us all kinds of accolades, Lord, please do that. But Father, if you just need us to work behind the scenes, in ways that don't seem to produce any fruit. Then we'll take that too. Lord Jesus, we, 2,000 years later, are so abundantly aware of the fact that your death led to eternal life that your death was followed by resurrection and ascension. But Father, we're still struggling like the disciples struggled that night in the garden, still struggling with what it means to lay down our life for you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we are praying and as, as we continue to pray, Lord, we pray that you would open our minds. You would open our hearts. You would open our wills. That your kingdom might come and your will might be done in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools just as clearly, just as beautifully, just as powerfully as it is done in heaven. We are your servants, Lord. Speak, for we are listening. And all of God's people say, Amen.